This morning's message, I titled it, Striving Together for the Faith of the Gospel. Being a witness for Jesus Christ in a world that I believe is getting more hostile towards God. It's getting more hostile towards Christians. And I believe that for the church, that it's a time that we really need to be making a stand for truth. I believe that uh, the truth of Christianity, uh, that it's under great attack every single day. Just watch your news. Just watch what's going on around you. Christianity is under attack probably like it's never been before. The Bible is under attack. And we have an enemy that is using all sorts of means really to come in and really come up against the truth. Uh, I believe one of those areas is the media. Our day and age of, of media and all the techno stuff that we have. I mean... Just turn on your TV, look at the... I mean, the battle is raging. And you know, what's sad is, is that this battle that's raging for truth and for the Word of God, I believe that it in a lot of ways is having a negative effect upon much of the church. There is a lot of the church that is growing stronger in the days that we're living in, because actually the persecution is driving them towards Christ. But there are some that are beginning to falter, and they're struggling. And when the enemy comes around and begins to feed these half-truths, it's it's usually always a half-truth, not a full lie. We do, he he can do better by giving us half-truths. And many of the people within the church... I believe, are beginning to fall to those things. So this morning, I want to talk about this real battle for truth. We have a real battle that is raging. It's a spiritual battle. You don't always see it on TV. It's it's out there, though, and the enemy wants to distort the truth. As Christians, I believe that... uh, there's a warning out for us. And I think that the warning is is that we better be getting into our Bibles. Getting into our Bibles more. Knowing the Word of God. If you're one that is taking that lightly, then you're going to be more of a a person that the enemy can come along and and feed those little bits of non-truths to you and you might buy them up. It's really the Word of God that sorts all those things out. We uh, at Calvary Chapel, and not just Calvary Chapel, but the churches that do this, I believe that the whole Word of God, the whole counsel of God's Word is important for us to know. 
That's why every single week when I come to this place, I come here to teach the Word of God. There's a lot of other things we could do as a church, but I come here to teach the Word of God because I believe that the whole counsel of God's Word is important for you to know, verse by verse, every bit of it. As I shared a couple weeks ago, there's some people that shy away from certain books of the Bible. And I don't believe that we should. I believe that we need to know it all. Remember when Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples, in John 14, 6, he said to the Lord, he says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. And how can we know the way? And you know what the problem is? Is There's a lot of Christians that are really saying the same thing today. I don't know the way. I don't know how I should be walking. I don't know what I should be doing. And the facts are is that the Word of God tells us. We just need to know our Word. Jesus responded to Thomas. He says, I'm the way, Thomas. The truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That was Jesus' words. But he went on to also say in John 17, 17, that same night, Jesus there was praying. And he prayed to the Father. This was uh, the night he was going to be arrested. He prayed to the Father and he said this. He said, sanctify them by your truth. That was Jesus praying. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. That word sanctified means to be set apart. Just think of what knowledge of truth that you do have as a believer and the effect that that has had in your life since you've come to know Christ. The more truth that you grab hold of, the more you're going to see victories in your life, the more that you're going to be able to go forward and be uh, better equipped for the things that come up against you in this world. I believe that our men were in Second John this last Tuesday, was it? If you read Second John, you'll see these exhortations really, not specifically as I'm saying them, you would read them, and as you read the text, you'll see this but that we need to know the truth, meaning Jesus Christ himself. That's the first thing. We need to know the truth. But we also, as believers, need to know truth. And the truth of God's word is found right here. As Christians, we need to pursue truth. When I think of pursuing, I think of running after it. I need to know the truth of God's word. We also are called to defend truth as believers. We're called to speak the truth, aren't we? We're called to follow after truth. We're also exhorted in Scripture to put on the belt of truth. That belt of truth holds on all the rest of the arm. Everything was attached. And so truth is primary for us as believers. We need to walk in the truth, and we need to also abide in the truth. 
I mean, these are the importance of God's word and his truth in your life. It's paramount for you to be victorious as a believer. Don't ever minimize it of how important it is for you to spend time knowing Jesus Christ through his word. But we also know that these attacks against the church and really against the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it's nothing new. It's been going on for all these centuries, all the time. The church under persecution, the gospel uh, being persecuted. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts uh, in chapter 8. We know that at the time that this was being written, that the church was under great persecution, we're told, in Scripture. Uh, It's hard for us sometimes to comprehend and wrap our heads around because we are not currently living in a country where, as believers, we're under great persecution. But the early church was living in, 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 in a place and a time that it was under great persecution. And we read that in chapter 8, verse 1. At that time, great, a great persecution arose against the church, which was, in, which was at Jerusalem. And we're told that the church was scattered because of this persecution throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And then we read in verse 4. It says, Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. You know, God has a way of doing things that we wouldn't probably say this is the best way to do it. Persecution to spread God's church, to uproot some of them and move them out of their city because of the persecution. Send them to another city and to this part and all over so that the gospel would spread like seeds being planted around the world. But do we see that through this persecution that the church was shrinking back? That the church was getting weaker? That the gospel was going out less? No, we actually see that the church was actually growing stronger and becoming more bold in its witness. They went everywhere preaching the word. The text that I wanted to share from this morning is out of the book of Philippians in chapter 1. You can turn there. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 to 29. My Bible gives a little subtitle for this section, Striving and Suffering for Christ. How do you like that title? Striving and Suffering for Christ. Let's read it together, verse 27. Paul says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Isn't that a great verse? 
That would be a verse that I could say for our church, that would be a desire that I have for Calvary Chapel Fellowship here. That we would be all of one spirit. That we would all be of one mind together. We have a purpose and a goal. We have a vision of what we're trying to, to, to step out of this, these walls and, and see happen, that God would do. Having one spirit, one mind, striving together. When I think of striving, I think of effort. I think of pressing hard towards something. Uh, to me, it's not an easy word. Striving towards something. Here Paul says, striving together. For the faith of the gospel. It's like all of us being on the same page. We're all on the same page. We all know where we're going. We know what the Lord's mindset is about. And we're getting in line with that. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. In verse 28 he says, And not in any way terrified by your adversaries. We're told in Proverbs that the fear of man brings a snare to us. A snare is a trap. But those who put their trust in the Lord will be safe. We just just commit our lives to the Lord and say, Lord, my life is in your hands. Yes, Christians are martyred for their faith. But my life is in your hands, Lord. My days are marked and no one's going to take my life unless you allowed it, Lord. Not in any way terrified by your adversaries. And there are many adversaries out there. Sometimes your adversaries are your your immediate family, sadly to say. He goes on to say, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. Verse 29. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ... Not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Not a great verse. Not only to believe as Christians, but also to suffer for his sake. We don't always like that second half. Suffering is not pleasant, it's not easy. But it's been, be, uh, been granted on behalf of Christ. You gave your life to Christ. You became a child of God. And it's really what comes along with following Christ. And the harder you follow him, the more you could expect opposition. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.17, he says, For it is better... If it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Sometimes when suffering comes our way, it's because we're doing things wrong. (laughs) We got ourselves in a mess. But a lot of times as believers, when we suffer, it's because you're doing the right thing. You're unashamed of your faith. You're willing to step out there. And if you do so... You will suffer in some form or another. Let's now turn to the book of Acts in chapter 16. 
I want to give you a little bit of background here to this letter to the Philippians. Paul was writing this letter from a prison cell in Rome at the time that he's writing this letter to the Philippians, the church at Philippi there. It's actually been 10 years since the Apostle Paul came into this city and a church was planted and he evangelized in the city. Ten years have passed. Now he's in a Roman cell. And we read in Acts chapter 16, verse 16, we're told that it was Paul and Silas that came into this city of Philippi. And it happened as they went to prayer. And I think that's a good thing to underline right there. It happened as they went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and as and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. So here's this girl, demon-possessed girl, some girl that's making money for some guy, you know, out doing fortune-telling. And she's out saying, these men are, of the, are servants of the Most High God. She's demon-possessed, but saying the right thing. Because they were. And look at verse 18. And this she did for many days. But we're told that Paul was greatly annoyed. And I would say that he was not annoyed with her. He's annoyed with what was in this girl. What was within her that he was annoyed. For many days, her following. And finally, he turns and he says to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. He realized what was going on here as she followed at his coattails saying the things that she was saying. And of course, because the Lord was in this, this spirit came out that very hour, we're told. And when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities And they brought them to the magistrates and they said, These men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. You know what I wrote next to that? What a compliment. What a compliment. If somebody says you exceedingly trouble our city with your gospel, you're always talking about Jesus in this workplace. What a compliment. Thank you, Lord. If you catch it for the gospel's sake, It's a compliment. They go on to say they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up against them, and the magistrates, they tore off their clothes in blasphemy, and they commanded them to beat them with rods. (laughs) And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison. This was the, this was the pit. This was the worst place within the prison that you would want to be. 
into the inner prison and they fastened their feet in stocks. You know what I wrote there? What a privilege. (laughs) Would you deem it as a privilege to suffer on behalf of Christ? Maybe even to be put into prison for your faith. But to actually be able to be thinking in your mind, what a privilege that I'm here. God has something for me even here. You know how I believe uh, those words is because look what it says in verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and they were singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. They They were not distracted from the moment. Beaten with rods, bloodied, in chains, in a dark pit, singing praises to God, hymns to God. Incredible. That's the power of God, not the power of Paul and Silas. Look at verse 26. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors, doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. And he would have done that because it would have been his death. If the prisoners get out, you die. And then, so he's about to run himself through. And Paul calls out with a loud voice from this dark dungeon saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Paul and Silas, they could have been running. The doors were open. The stocks were off. They could have been running for their life. We can get out of here. Let's go, guys. Run. But they didn't. And then he called for a light. The guard did. He ran in. He falls down trembling. Look at your Bibles, trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and he said this, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Isn't that incredible? Have you ever had somebody say those words to you? I know you're a Christian. I've been thinking about this for a while. I, I, I don't know how to get to heaven. Could you, could you tell me how? I mean, those are kind of like the best words you could hear as a believer when it comes to witnessing. Can you tell me how to be saved? Sometimes we just think that it's all a hard road. Nobody wants to hear. But there are times when God ordains it. You know what? This man was ready. What must I do to be saved? He saw really a miracle of God before his own eyes. The prisoners didn't even run off. This is how Paul responded. So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night. This is the guard washing their stripes. Now he's ministering to them. And immediately he and all of his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into the house, he set food before them. And he rejoiced having believed in God with all his household. Paul's confidence in the Lord, to me, it's incredible to read. 
it's amazing when you, when you just think that Paul here is in prison with such confidence that God has him there for a specific purpose. All of a sudden, this earthquake takes place. Now, keep in mind that this earthquake, I believe, is being generated by God, which tells me that God's in control of the elements. God orchestrates these things. This witnessing opportunity, the the sail doors opening, the chains falling off, that's a miracle of God, isn't it? When I read it, I look at that, that's a miracle. I don't spiritualize, no, that's a miracle. The chains really did fall off, the doors really did open. But you know what's even more amazing about the story that we just read here? is the fact that God did all of this as they entered into that city and they went to prayer. He did all of this for one slave girl that was demon-possessed. Get your head around that. The God that created the heavens and the earth sends Paul and Silas into the city. And here's this one girl, this one slave girl, demon-possessed. God did that for one. Were there others that got saved? Yes. But he did it for that moment for one. He also did it for one man. That prison guard that was there. They'll be beaten with rods. Thrown into prison. But there's a man in prison there. There's a man that really is hungry in heart. And that man's going to get saved. He did it for one man. He also did it for one family, didn't he? Because the jailer's family got baptized and saved. He did it just for one family. He did it for one of your family members. Your family. He did it also for this one prison that Paul and Silas were locked up in. You know why? Because it was full of unsaved prisoners. And you have to believe that as Paul and Silas were locked in this dungeon, singing hymns and praises to God as it echoed through that prison cell, what do you think was going through the minds of these other prisoners? These guys are either nuts or something was going on inside. They were hearing those words. Why would God do all of this for just a few? It's a good question. And I I, I believe it's because God deems just one soul as being valuable, as precious. One person. You know, 28 years ago, I went on my first, first missionary trip. It was to the Philippines. And God sent me there, and I got on the, this jeep. They call them a jeepney. And I rode for an hour with some other brothers, sisters, to, uh, out to a prison. An hour ride out there, and I was going to share the word with these prisoners out in this courtyard. I was scared stiff. I'd never done that before. You're going to be speaking through a translator. And I was going, oh, man, what did I get myself into? 
But we arrive there and these 100 plus men are standing out in this courtyard. And I shared the gospel, shared the word with them. God sent me there to the Philippines to go out to that jungle to go talk to 100 men in a prison out there because he wanted them to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Twelve years ago, the Lord sent me and my family to Wales. We were there for six years. And you know what? In the time that we were there in a place that is deemed as being spiritually dead, the UK as a whole, Europe, much of Europe, but the UK as a whole, would be deemed as spiritually dead. But God sent us there, and we were, had the privilege of seeing two churches planted. We preached the gospel to many, many people there in that city. And the reason God would do that and expend all the monies to send us there into the mission field was because he's not willing that any would perish. No matter how hard that country is and, and no matter how spiritually dead they are, God knows there's people that are, have hungry hearts within the UK that need to hear the gospel. God would do that with us. He would send us to those remote places in the world for a soul. I hope that everyone this morning realizes how much God loves you. I mean that you really understand how much God really loves you. He cares for you as one individual. If you were just felt like you were the only one sitting in this sanctuary today, he cares just for you. He died just for you, one individual. Try and remove everybody else aside from yourself. He died for you. He laid down his life for you. He redeemed you. He suffered for you. He delivered you. He adopted you. He rose from the dead for you. That's incredible. That's incredible love. One that we're, we only have a little, we have a taste of it because the love of God dwells inside of us. But it's unconditional love that God has for you. You know, it's this truth of God's love towards you that could, should cause us to get out of bed every day and want to be a witness for Jesus Christ. It's why we should get up. Have anybody in here uh, remember Keith Green? Raise your hand if you've heard of Keith Green. Okay, we got a few. He had a song, I love this song, that Jesus rose from the dead and we can't even get out of bed. You know, and there's a lot of truth in that because, you know, there's a lot of things God calls us to, but a lot of times we find ourselves getting lazy. Jesus rose from the dead and we can't even get out of bed. Does God want to use you and your family to reach your loved ones? Every one of us here, would raise their hand if I asked you, do you have a loved one right now that, you would, that you're praying for, that you want to see come to know Christ? There wouldn't be one of us that wouldn't raise our hand. And God wants to use you. 
He also wants to use this church to reach out to our Jerusalem. Do you know what our Jerusalem is? Because we are Calvary Chapel Fellowship of Winston-Salem, then our Jerusalem, we're going to call it Winston-Salem. You say, well, I don't live in Winston-Salem. The next point out from that is we'll call it the county of Forsyth County, which much of you live in Forsyth County. And beyond that, we're going to take it out to North Carolina. We're going to take it out, and it's just going to keep going out until it reaches out to the world. You shall, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses in Judea, Judea Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. That's what God wants to do. But our Jerusalem here, and we were in our Jerusalem, kind of. We weren't in Winston yesterday. We're in our Jerusalem here, the local to our church yesterday in that park because we want to reach people that are here around us. And your Jerusalem can be your next-door neighbor and the people you work with. That's your Jerusalem. We all have a Jerusalem. We have a Judea. And some of us are called to the uttermost parts of the world. Again, Paul says in Philippians, he says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's our calling as Christians. That's our calling as a church. I've learned through the years that the two biggest struggles for Christians are probably going to be prayer and sharing your faith. Those are the two biggest things that we uh, probably struggle with as Christians. Would you agree? You know, praying and sharing your faith, and it, it, it enters into that spiritual realm, doesn't it? To go out and share your faith and to trust, you know, to get down on your knees and to pray for things that don't happen immediately and to be consistent at it, to persevere at it, to stick with it. And so often Christians, we, we struggle with that area of being consistent in our prayer life and consistent in our everyday witness for the Lord. And I do believe it's because they are areas of a spiritual battle. You want to get into a spiritual battle, then start praying a lot. Start going out and sharing your faith and see how it'll heat up. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 28, Jesus gave the great commission. He said this to all Christians of all time, not just to the disciples that he was speaking to. He said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. That includes you and I. I'm with you even to the end of the age. He says, I'm going to give you the task, but I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit and the power to be able to accomplish what I've called you to do, what I've commanded you to do. How many of us here have had the privilege of leading one person to Christ? And then after you prayed with them to come to know Christ, you began to teach them the things that the Lord has taught you as you've been a Christian. You saw them start to grow. You saw them through with being water baptized. You actually had opportunity to maybe give them a little bit of help in going out and sharing their faith. 
And then the day that that person comes to you and says, hey, I had an opportunity to lead somebody to the Lord. And you realize, you know, I led you to the Lord, you know, however long ago it was, I led you to Christ. And not to your glory, to God's glory. But you know what I say with that? That's discipleship. Discipleship is seeing somebody come to Christ, taking them all the way through the process of what Christ has taught you. And when that person goes out and duplicates himself and leads somebody to Christ, that's when discipleship is complete. Sometimes we think it's just leading them to the Lord. No, the Lord didn't call us to go out and just make converts. He says, go into all the world and make disciples. That's the command. When Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians... Uh, he was uh, in, ch- in chapter one where he says the saints, the church, the bishops, the deacons. This is in chapter one, verse one. He, he lists this whole list of people that he's writing to. And you know what I say? This letter was written not just to the people that are sitting in the church. It was written to the pastors of those churches. It was written to the deacons or the leaders in the church. In other words, the gospel and the command to go out and take the gospel out to this world and the encouragement and the exhortation that Paul was giving in this first chapter was for the whole church, pastor included, everyone, all the leaders, everyone in it. So the task of evangelism is not limited just to the people, it's to all of us. I also believe that this letter here to the church at Philippi was intended to challenge the church, but it was also intended to encourage the church to be bolder in the sharing of their faith. Turn with me in your Bibles to Gospel of Matthew in chapter 10. Jesus here, he told his disciples on this occasion... He said, men, I want to tell you something. Persecution is going to come. He doesn't say that it might come. He said persecution will come. He also said, but men, I don't want you to be afraid. Really, those are the two things that he's saying. In verse 16 we read, Behold, Jesus says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. (laughs) That's a good way to start it out. You're just sheep going out amongst wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. I think that's some good advice for us believers when we witness. Be wise as serpents. We think of how crafty a serpent, but gentle as a little dove. Have the mixture of both in your evangelism and as you share with people. But he says in verse 70, But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake. And I would underline that. It's for Jesus' sake. As a testimony to them and to the Gentiles... But when they deliver you up, he's not saying if they do, but when they do, do not worry about how or what you shall speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you shall speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. 
How many of you have experienced the power of God, His Spirit, giving you words to speak to somebody as you're talking with them about the Lord, sharing the gospel, telling them about Jesus, and you, when you're done with that conversation, you go, Lord, you did that. That definitely wasn't me. You just spoke through me and gave me words and brought verses back to my mind. You did it. He says, I'll give you the words to speak in the hour that you need them. In the moment that you need them. He just says, I want you to go. I'm not going to give you the whole lesson plan beforehand. (laughs) Just go. And when you get there and you stand before the governors and you stand before the mass, I'll give you the words in that moment to say. That takes trust. That takes believing that God's spirit wants to speak through you. We just need to step out onto the water, so to speak, and trust God in faith that he will do that. Verse 21 now brother, uh, now brother will deliver up brother to death and father his ch- child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Again, he says it. But he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, I want you to flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. When persecution comes, when they don't want it, go on to the next. You might be thinking about right now, you know, I mean, what an encouraging message you brought to us today. You're talking about persecution. You're talking about a suffering for Christ. But you know what? These things really should be an encouragement to us. They should stir our hearts. Why? Because it's for the name of Christ that we do it. Look at verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher. If they persecuted Jesus and did those things to him, why would we be expected to receive anything less? Nor a teacher above his master. Is it Enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master? If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, which is really a name for the devil, if they're calling Jesus Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? What have you been called because of Jesus' sake? Look what he says in verse 26. Therefore... And this is the first of them. Therefore, do not fear them. Have you ever been fearful of a family member? (laughs) Have you ever been fearful of somebody at work or fearful of what people might think if you were to say something, open your mouth? Fearful, you know what I mean? Fearful they might reject you. Fearful they might, you know, slap you, whatever. Fearful that they just don't like what you stand for. And so you stay quiet. Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the darkness, men, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. In other words, don't do it hidden. Get out there and be unashamed of your faith. And then he says it again. 
verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Where is your greater fear factor? Is it men or is it God? What drives you? He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. How much detail does God know about you and your life? Your individual life. How much detail does he know? He knows it all. He knows all your fears, your anxieties, the things that keep you back from stepping forward with the Lord and all those kinds. He knows all those things. He says, verse 30, he says, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. (laughs) It's getting easier for him and me. But he has the very hairs of your head numbered. Why does he say it like that? Because he says, I know the very details of your life. I know you're, you're one foot in front of the other every single day. I know where I'm leading you. I, want to know how, I, I, I know how I want to use you. Look what he says in verse 32. And many times we read this scripture and we think of this like an altar call. This is in the context of Jesus telling his disciples, I'm sending you out into a world that is not necessarily going to be happy with your message, but I'm calling you and I'm sending you to go, and I don't want you to be afraid. Verse 32, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. We can't be ashamed of our faith. We need to proclaim it. We need to tell people. Verse 34, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth, he tells his disciples. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. When we read these kinds of words, there's people that have put on, you know, written all kinds of uh, the hard sayings of Jesus. And these are difficult words. Because it actually challenges us to our very core of what we say we believe. And many times when it comes to these kinds of things, uh, even family and friends and people that we hold so dear, we, we, we tend to shrink back. If I'm too much out there with it, I'll turn them off, they'll, they'll turn away from God and they'll never come in. And we have all these different things. No, I think we should think the opposite. Just be, speak the truth speak the truth, speak the gospel, share it in sincerity, and trust God. Did anyone ever tell you when you became a Christian that it was going to be easy? Did anyone ever say, you know, hey, you accept Christ, everything will change, everything will be good? Life actually can get harder in many ways when you follow after Christ. 
I think that the problem that we have as Christians in America is that we haven't really always experienced some of the real difficult trials of following Christ. Unless you renounce your faith as a Christian, you're going to die. The many Christians over there in, in Iraq and Syria that are dying unless they renounce it. You know, I have a little bit of a, a struggle when I, when I talk about these things living in America, to be honest with you. Because I, I, I see so much of the world that is under great persecution, and I'm not under great persecution myself. Am I asking for it? No. Uh, if it will it come it, it, it may and I believe that it is coming more and more to America but you know what it, it, it's difficult to read I, I started looking at, uh, once again at some of the things going on in our world and if you want to look at a good website one of them is called open doors talks about uh, the ministry of to the persecuted church around the world you know what the number one country in the world is for persecution right now North Korea. North Korea, for 12 years running, it's estimated that 50 to 70,000 Christians are in labor camps in North Korea. Number two is Somalia. It's reported to have, out of its 10 million people, only a few hundred Christians that live in that country. How would you like to be one of the few hundred in that kind of a, uh, of a surrounding the militant Islamic group Al-Shabaab targets Christians in local communities. Ten believers are reported to have been killed by members of Al-Shabaab in 2013. Number three is Syria. 21.8 million people with an estimated 1.3 million Christians in that country. And this country currently has the highest number of Christians being killed in it as of this year. In 2013, it was ranked number 11 on this list of nations in the order of persecution within the country. In 2014, it moved up to number three. Open Doors reported that Christian death worldwide doubled in 2014. Of the 2,123 reported Christians who have been killed during the 12 months ending October 31st, 2013, 1,213 of those were in Syria with what's going on there right now as we speak. According to the World Watch List who monitors the media worldwide for reported incidents saying, says the this is the very, very minimal count that we're looking at here with this 2,000 number, 2,000 plus deaths worldwide. It's estimated that the total number of Christians killed from the International Institute for Religious Freedoms around the world is seven to 8,000. There's another organization called the Center for Studies of Global Christianity uh, a man by the name of Thomas Schurmacher says that he estimates that the number of Christian deaths around the world is around 100,000. 
The reason why there's such a diversity in the numbers is because that number of 2,000 plus is just strictly based on confirmed deaths. But there are Christians that are being persecuted in great numbers and in different forms around this world, not always with their life, but in different fashions around this world, day in and day out, and it's increasing as the day draws closer. One of my favorite chapters to read, if I feel like I need to be stirred to action in my own Christian walk, is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 36. We read this, after listing all of these men and women of great faith prior to this, it says, there were others. It says there were others whose names were not listed. The no names. Still listed in the Bible, but their name wasn't put in there. They had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. These are the men and women martyred for their faith throughout church history, the no-names that are listed in Scripture. This is in the hallmark of faith. It says, of whom the world was not worthy. When we read about the persecuted church, I think that it should have a good effect upon us. Not a negative effect. It should have a good effect. Paul, when he wrote this letter to the Philippians, he did so to not discourage the believers there, but that he would strengthen and embolden them. Look in your uh, Bibles at Philippians chapter 1. We're almost through. Verse 12. I want you to know, brethren, Paul says, that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word of God with what? Without fear. You mean, Paul's actually accomplishing something in writing the way he's writing. He's not writing to brag about what God is doing through him. He's writing to encourage the church there, to strengthen the church, to embolden the church, to even be more of a witness for him. What I see in these verses that Paul trusted in the sovereign will of God for his life. He says in verse 12, the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. I'm in this prison and people are getting saved. Paul saw the man that was chained to him in that Roman prison. He didn't see him as a guard. 
I believe that he saw him as a lost soul. Could you imagine being chained to the apostle Paul? That's what they would do. Chain him to the guard. He's not going anywhere. But could you imagine being chained to the apostle Paul? Hearing the gospel. Paul saw a soul next to him that couldn't get away. Paul also saw himself not as a prisoner of Rome, but a prisoner of Christ in verse 13. He says, so that it became evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that were there that my chains are in Christ. I'm here because God has me here. Not because I just kind of was in the wrong place at the wrong time I got thrown into prison. Oh, what I do wrong? Lord, you know, I, I could be so much more useful for you outside of these prison walls. But you have me here because there's people here that need to get saved. And lastly, Paul saw his chains were not just for the lost, but they were also for the saved. That's a whole different mindset. He saw his chains as not just being for the lost there, but also for the church outside of prison. So that they would go out and speak the word of God without fear. If I can preach the gospel here in my chains and people are getting saved, let that be an encouragement to you. As you look at all the Christians around the world suffering for the gospel's sake, let that be an encouragement to you to go out and say, well, I can surely do it here. Let me close with the reading of our text again. In Philippians 1.27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Father, I just thank you for today. I thank you for this church. I pray, Lord, that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Lord, that the words that were spoken, Lord... Father, that they would be words that would encourage our heart and challenge our hearts to go out, Lord, into this world, wherever that might lead, and be a witness for you. We just thank you for saving us. We do thank you for the freedoms that we have in this country, for the Bibles that we hold in our hands, for the church building that we can sit in today without much fear of persecution. And Lord, I just pray, Lord, that those things, Lord, would not make us lazy, but it would compel us to do something more. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.